Okay, I think we'll begin if, uh, if that's okay with everybody. That doesn't mean leave, that means stay. I was hoping there'd be a couple elders stay. Seeing so we're talking about elders. Oh, there's one, good. There's some former elders here, which is okay. Okay, um, if we haven't had the privilege before, it looks like I know all of you. My name is Greg Lidke, and I uh, have been asked to facilitate uh, this class today on Chapter 5 of 1 Peter. I think this is the fifth, maybe the fourth lesson here on 1 Peter, and then not next week, but the week after we'll start on 2 Peter. I think for three uh, three sessions. Let's just uh, pray first, okay? Father, we acknowledge your presence here. We ask that you would uh, open our hearts to the message today of First uh, Peter. Father, we. Uh, we know how difficult it is to somehow relate to these writings of 2,000 years ago, but, Father, we ask that uh, we would somehow be able to apply these lessons uh, that you have given us today in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so First Peter chapter 5. Anybody receive a letter from an elder this week? Anybody receive a letter at all? Probably not, right? We don't get letters anymore. What do we get? Email or texts or tweets or whatever. But think about 2,000 years ago in the first century Christians. They didn't have a Bible. They had the Old Testament if they were a Jewish Christian, I guess. But they had no real Jewish history per se because they were now a Christian. We were brought in up we were brought up in a Christian tradition and so we have that behind us. But the Jews in a lot of ways had to put away that and start new. And the only way they could get instruction was if they received a letter or an envoy or a convoy bringing a letter. So you can well imagine how excited they must have been when they got a letter or they got somebody bringing a letter like this. And so that's what we're talking about today. And this letter that that we have already had a number of lessons on is a letter of from Peter... What do we know about Peter, first of all? Let's do, let's do a little history here. Who is Peter? Give me some knowledge. He's a pretty He's a pretty aggressive guy with a sword. He was an ex-fisherman, right? Gave a lot of wrong answers. But he also gave a lot of right answers. And the best right answer was what? You are the Messiah. 
the son of the living God. Wasn't that the number one answer? He was a fisherman. He was the first one called, and some people would say he was probably Jesus' best friend because he was with them from the start. And Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. He was kind of like a bodyguard for Jesus during his ministry. And so when they tried to take Jesus away, what did he do? Took his sword and cut off the ear of the soldier. And what did Jesus say? He still haven't got it. He put it back on and healed him and said, that's not my kingdom. We actually have two G or sorry, two Peters. Did you know that? There's actually two Peters. Peter before the Pentecost and Peter after the Pentecost. The Peter before was all of what you said, but he also was fearful, was he not? He denied Jesus. And after he died, his whole world fell apart because he thought that Jesus was a savior, a military savior. And once they killed him, his world fell apart. He felt bad, of course, because he had denied Jesus and he wasn't there to protect him at the end. In fact, when they came and said, he's risen, he says, no, he hasn't. He didn't even believe that. And so we have Peter prior and Peter after. And we're now talking with the Peter after. And so many of what he's going to say here in these next 14 verses, you need to remember that this is the Peter after. He has been through so much with Jesus. He's denied Jesus. And now he is his disciple. The purpose of 1 Peter, of course, is to encourage readers to endure suffering and persecution and to give themselves entirely to God. That's what we've been, we've been reading and we've been learning about in the first four. It's about remaining faithful in distress, knowing that God will ultimately vindicate us and enjoy the salvation that God has promised us. You can sum up a Christian's life as a call to victory and glory through the path of suffering. That's pretty much what we've been to at this point. Okay, so let's uh, begin and let me, let's just, let me read. First of all, there's only 14 verses here. I don't know how I'm going to fill up 40 minutes with 14 verses, but I'm just kidding. Okay, let's read it because it's short and we can get the full feeling here. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, 
therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, Send you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. By the way, did Peter have a son? Do you have a son, Mark? The answer is no, it was not his biological son. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of this. The first uh, four verses here, it says, are to the elders. Do you see that? And it really, in some of the some of the versions of your Bible, may say, therefore. Does anybody have that in theirs as a start? Therefore? Really what it's saying is, because we've already talked about the suffering, we're now going to talk a little bit about, in effect, how do we work out this suffering And this first little bit of advice here, or a little bit of exhortation, is to the elders that are among you. He says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, someone someone that has witnessed Christ's suffering, who is also, and who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Um, what, What is Peter doing here in this first couple verses? At least, or sorry, the first verse here. What's he saying, or what's the point of saying all this? Yeah, absolutely. He says, um, I have some authority in speaking to you elders, as I was one that basically was with Jesus through his ministry. I am a fellow elder. Now, if that means in a congregation or a church of where he's at, possibly. But I think it really is about giving some authority to what he's going to say to the elders here. Now, we know that in Acts, it talked about Paul and Barnabas appointing elders in in these areas once he had set up the church. And so, there may have been a problem here. I'm not sure if it's just an exhortation to elders as this letter is passed along, we're not sure. But he's basically saying, I think I can speak to you as a fellow elder because of what I have been through with Jesus and who I am. We said that he was an eyewitness of Christ's suffering. He affirmed his apostleship, and he was anticipating eternal glory to come ahead. He was also at the transfiguration 
Do you remember that? He was there, um, and he got to see a glimpse of the glory that we are to see and to come in the future. Okay, so at this point he now says specifically to the elders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under you, watch over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over them, those who have entrusted to you, but being examples. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never be taken away. Um, we know that the qualifications of an elder is pointed out in Titus and in First Timothy. But I think here it's more the attitude that he's talking about of an elder. So give me some of the things that we just read that would be an attitude that an elder should have. They're listed here. A willingness to serve. So not a job, but a call, right? Okay, other things. That the leadership should be a, a leadership of example versus what? Do as I say, not as I do type of a thing. Okay? Other things? Okay, an overseer here. Okay, what does that word mean? Well, an overseer basically uh, is someone that manages God's household, isn't he? Actually, the word here, presbyteros, is a Greek word that really means who rules the church is what it means here. Okay, other, other uh, attitudes here. Somebody else had said it too at the same time. Okay, he gives the example or the analogy here of the elders being a, 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 a shepherd, right? And so if we want to look at that analogy, what sort of things would a shepherd do or have uh, as an attitude towards their sheep? What do shepherds do with sheep? The care for their sheep, good. And care would mean feed them, right? So an elder here probably means what? Teach? Teach the word, okay. Other things? They protect them. So they need to know their sheep, don't they? So an elder is not somebody that's far away. They need to be involved with their people or their sheep. Okay, other things? Right, so it's not something where you just sit back and watch, right? There is an, an, you need to mix it up with them. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, you need to mix it up. It's not just having the authority. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you lose that, what? Maybe you shouldn't be an elder anymore, I think is what Peter is saying, right? I would say a shepherd loves their sheep, is concerned for their sheep. Yeah, ultimately we could go through the analogy, nurture, love, care. 
you're a little hard to love. Well, my dad used to uh, look after sheep, and he said sheep are the stupidest animal on the earth. I don't know what that means in pertaining to what you just said, but no. Just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. It is hard to love all the sheep. But that doesn't mean that the elders shouldn't, right? Now, you'll notice that these elders that he's talking to are helper elders, are they not? Or helper shepherds. Because who is the chief shepherd? Christ is the chief shepherd. And then in verse 4, it says that these will, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. They're getting something special, the elders. They're getting a crown of glory. I don't think this has ever been taught in the Church of Christ since I've been here for 30 years, but the Bible talks about five crowns, five heavenly crowns. Has anybody heard this? Five heavenly crowns that are promised in in the Bible. Now, I didn't bring any overhead or anything, so if you're interested, you might want to write this down. But here are the five heavenly crowns that are promised. The first one is the crown of life, which is mentioned in James 1 and Revelation 2. This is for those who suffer and persevere under trials. Jesus, Jesus referenced this crown in his when he talked to the church in Smyrna, not to be afraid of what you're about to suffer, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. First crown. Second crown is the crown of imperishable crown. This is found in 1 Corinthians 9.25, written by Paul. It says, this crown of imperishable crown is to contrast it with the temporal awards Paul's contemporaries pursued. It therefore is given to those individuals who demonstrate self-denial and perseverance. That's the crown of incorruptible crown. The crown of righteousness is the third crown. It is found in 2 Timothy 4. For those who love and anticipate the second coming of Christ, These Christians desire intimacy with God, it says. Fourth crown is the one we just talked about, the crown of glory, right here. It says Jesus is granted specifically to elders who shepherd the flock in unselfish love and are a good example to others. And then the last one is the crown of exaltation or rejoicing. This is found in... Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, to people who are engaged in evangelism outside of the Christian church. In the New Testament, Paul earns this crown after winning the Thessalonicus to faith in Christ. So there does appear to be different rewards for different people based on different circumstances. What do you think about that? How do you feel about that? Does it matter to you? Uh, 
Right. Judge differently. Right. And double honor, right? Yeah. Right. Not everybody needs the same information at the same time. Depends a bit on their circumstances. So it's encouragement to somebody that is suffering a particular thing or dealing with a particular issue, there might be a different kind of uh, example given as far as reward. So I think it depends a little bit on the. Right. So how does it feel, though, that you know that there's going to be different rewards or crowns given to different people? That's my question. How does it make you feel? Great idea. Is that works? Is that works? Kelly? Yeah, okay. Well, I also think the whole idea of servanthood, and so, which is so counter to our culture of, you know, striving for the top or whatever we have in terms of glory on this, in this life versus striving to be the servant of all, which takes the lowest esteem in this life, and therefore God will give the honor in the end. Right. For him to give honor where people have sacrificed through life. Right. God has given the grace through Christ to us. He has every right to give crowns or different crowns to others. James? I struggle a little bit. It takes me back when the disciples were sitting with Jesus and they're murmuring to each other. You know, we had an island of you on the Right. Christ is kind of like, you guys still get, you know, and this idea, even presenting the idea of of reward, um, differentiating each of us for our world and life, um, to me creates a conflict. Um, Much like in reverse, the idea that we say, well, I don't do any of this acts. I just do these little things. But in the eyes of God, all things are the same. And then reverse, when you start looking at sort of the end, as soon as you introduce something like crowds, you introduce a motivation. Right. Right. A work. Rather than simply just saying that, like your children, we all are going to hopefully attain eternal life. So, what is this double honor? Is it how much better can it be? Can it be? You mean? Yeah. How much better can it get? 
Well, let me alleviate your concerns. Because if you go to the book of Revelation, John says this, if you can remember the scene where the elders are sitting around Christ, what do they do with their crowns? They give them back. They give them to Christ in honor. Does that help, James? It's Revelation 4.10. So in some ways we can't understand it. There are different rewards, potentially different crowns, but ultimately they're all given back to Christ as we honor Him. We don't know what that's going to be like. Nobody can ever say, been there, done that, when we think about heaven, or we talk about heaven, right? But we know it's going to be unbelievable. Anyway, he makes that reference to crowns as opposed to the wreath that was given during the Olympics, a crown of whatever. Greg, can I just add one thing, which is what James raised? Because for me... The whole thing is the attitude of the heart. And if those people, if the apostles, you know, talked through, they were looking for where they could fit into this, again, with the wrong heart. The heart of service says, I'll cast my crown down at the end. You know, the heart of completely giving everything for Christ says, I live and I serve in a way that honors and glorifies Him, not seeking the crown. Right. And... Peter knows exactly your mind because what does he say next? Take a look what he says next. Let's go to verse 5. 5 to 7. In the same way, you who are younger... Does, any, does anybody have the version where it says younger men? Okay, younger men. Okay, that's the one I like. So in the same way, you younger men, submit yourself to your elders... All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, before God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So Peter is now saying, how do we follow? If we have elders that have been appointed and we know what their characteristics and attitudes should be towards us, how do we follow them as they lead the church? And it's very clear right from the beginning that the emphasis here is on what? Humility, isn't it? For those that have young men, why do you think he pointed specifically out or this out to young men? We generically just take that out because it might confuse, so we just say everybody, right? All of us. All of who are younger, I mean. I guess it doesn't matter why he pointed out young men other than what? Right. Right. Exactly. 
They've got all this energy, they've got all these hormones, and they think they know better than everybody, right? So he says, well, when you're in a congregation, the elder starts talking, you need to listen to them. And then once Peter says that, he says, oh, I kind of lost my mind there for a second. I should mean all of us, not just the young men. Isn't that what he says? All of you, therefore, should clothe yourself with humility. This idea of clothing ourselves is the Greek word where a servant would put on an apron before they would serve. It's the idea of Jesus putting on an apron before he washed the disciples' feet. What's your definition of humility? Because he says... Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Isn't, is humility one of those words that you think you know, but it's hard to explain what it is? Explain to me what humility is. It's, you don't think it's what? Groveling. Groveling. It's not meekness. Knowing one's own purpose and value, and what would those be? To be children of God. Okay, good. (laughs) Putting others first. Humility is putting others first in front of yourself. Okay. Daryl? The opposite of arrogance, or what we get here in a few more verses, the opposite of pride. In fact, it says God opposes the proud, right? Arrogance and pride. And pride is what? Boasting in self. Yeah, self, right? It's me. Extreme Extreme self, extreme me, putting me first. Our great great-great-grandma, Eve, basically fell because of pride, did she not? And dragged great-great-great-grandpa along with her. I'm just kidding, right? What did the devil say to them? You want to be a servant to God? You need to be better than that. In fact, you have all of the abilities to be your own God. Why would you continue to be a servant or be under God's rule? That's pride, is it not? Yeah. Let me give you some definitions or some descriptions of what people think humility is. Charles Spurgeon I think some of you know the writings of Charles Spurgeon, right? 19th century. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble, never to be irritated or sore or disappointed, is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me, is to be at rest when nobody praises me, And when I am blamed or despised, 
is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around me is troubled. It is the fruit of the Lord Jesus' redemptive work on Calvary's cross manifested in those of his own who are definitely subject to the Holy Spirit. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. Another individual said, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten because he has received the Spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus, he has put on the heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, and humility. The first test of a truly great man is his humility. I don't mean humility in doubting of his own power or hesitation or speaking his opinion, but really great men have a feeling that the greatness is not in them but through them, that they could, do, that they could not do or be anything else other than what God made them to be. Humility was not considered a virtue 2,000 years ago, and humility is not considered a virtue today. And yet God says what? I hate pride, number one, therefore I love humility, number one. Right. That's a good one. We're going to talk a little bit about Satan here. And Satan, of course, is the opposite of humility. Satan is the father of pride. And so if we want an example of being humble, we just have to look to Christ, do we not? And that's is very clearly enunciated here in Philippians. So let me read Philippians 2 to you. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only, should not look out for only their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your attitude that of Christ. And then he goes on to explain the attitude of Christ. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used as his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death and even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And that name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Pride led to the fall, 
And if we take a look, we'll notice that pride also is what God hates. Kevin? Greg, the observation would be to say that these passages that you're talking about is a much more different, difficult world than that of being an elder. And in the preamble of what he talked about, we tend to, we resist the idea that it's not uncommon in men to hear them say, I'm not ready, I'm not able, I'm not wanting, or whatever, or whatever this world is. And yet the, the counter to that would be to say, the other's world is more difficult. And, and the... Sorry, the other's role? The role of us, the, if you like. Right. All those who aren't in that role. The other, oh, I see. And so the, the reality of submitting is an incredibly difficult role in today's society. And I, I speak of that by experience some years ago when I was opposing the decision in the eldership. I was not an elder. And somebody came to me, who's actually in this audience, so, but they came to me and they challenged me with these scriptures. And all I could do was listen to them. And I, I knew the scriptures, I understood the idea of submitting. But it's occurred to me, ever since that time, how really I do not submit. I am a proud, arrogant, confident member of Western society and, and the capacity to submit to another is so, is so far in this society we now live and how hard it is to see it in ourselves we may, we may subordinate an opinion which is not submission, we may just say well I'm going to keep quiet I'm listening to you but I hold a different view but that's not what Jesus did in the scriptures you just read. Right. And he doesn't say he did it either in Hebrews where it says, for the joy set before him. So Jesus not only subordinated, subordinated or submitted himself unto death, but he approached his role of humility with one of joy. That is just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, just, I just wanted to catch the reality of that. Our role as Christians in today's society is incredibly difficult to get to this mindset of humility as described as what you just described. And was no different 2,000 years ago. No. I think we all agree that Christianity or being a Christian is not easy. It's just worth it at the end. Yeah. It's foreign. Absolutely. But it's worth it at the end. But I just wanted to point out very clearly that the Scripture says that God is opposed to the, to the pride, proud. And He loves the humble. And I tried to explain through these, these definitions what humble is. And that is very difficult in our society today to be humble. Do you pray for humility? <laughs> Right. Right. 
And that's why I said at the beginning, these new Christians, even if they were Jewish, had nothing to fall back on because this was so new to them. Everything was so new to them. And that's thus these epistles, these letters that came out to try to help them understand. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm going to have to do these last five verses in three, three minutes. How does it make you feel when it says that God cares for you? Yeah. So much of the Bible we can't comprehend, but we have to apprehend it. What does that mean? We have to believe it, apprehend it, because the Bible says it's so. By the way, um, this is one of the main differences between Christianity and what was going on in the first century. This idea that God cares for his people is totally foreign to all of the other gods and, and Roman gods, Greek gods at the time. Because all of those people worshipped those gods because they were angry at them. And so for Christianity to say we have a God that loves us, that cares for us, was totally foreign to them. And yet Peter says, that's what you need to understand here about our God. Cast your anxieties on him. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. What's your feeling about the devil or Satan? Is it something you don't want to think about? The analogy here is that he's prowling around like a lion wanting to devour you. I don't know a lot about lions, but I hear that they're pretty fast. Because it says in the next verse, resist him. It doesn't say run away from him. Nowhere in the Bible does it say run away from Satan. It says run away from sin, not from Satan. Lions are bullies. They just roar. They intimidate and that is somewhat what Satan does, but he also has power. It's a, it's a war going on here. Stand firm. And how do we resist him? We stand firm in the faith. What does the word the faith mean? The faith. What's it mean? Confidence, Confidence the doctrine that you've learned, right? It's not your faith. It's the faith that you resist the devil with. Stand firm, knowing that the family of believers are going through sufferings at the same time that you are. This whole book has been about suffering. It's been about... There's an end reward to our suffering. There's some confidence in knowing that Others are going through it, but I'm not sure that's a lot of confidence. We in Canada today don't go through the 
sufferings or the worries of suffering that they went through. But we do suffer. And there is some confidence in that. Here's what I think Peter is trying to say and give us some practical perspectives on suffering. He says that these trials are for a little while. If we regard them as a little while in light of eternity, it is for a little while. Would you agree? Secondly, it says the God of all grace. It doesn't say the God of a little bit of grace or a God of a lot of grace. It says the God of all grace will never, it'll never run out the grace that we are going to have. God did not call us to condemn us, but to bring to us to eternal glory. Isn't that something that's an encouragement when it says that He has called us? And the trials we know through First Peter, the previous verses, are to perfect us, strengthen us, make us strong, firm, and steadfast as we continue on our journey and as we shine our light in this dark world. Finally, it says, um, with Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, um, it's not uncommon for somebody like Peter, who was an uneducated man who probably just spoke Aramaic, did not write, to have a, an individual like Silas write the words for him. Uh, Silas was also a faithful brother that served with uh, Paul on his second missionary journey. He was also in the Philippian jail, if you remember, when they were beaten and they were singing songs and there was an earthquake and the chains fell off of them. So he was a faithful brother. He then talks about Babylon. She who is in Babylon, anybody know what that might mean, Babylon there? Well, it's probably a reference to Rome, where Peter was at the time when he wrote this letter. It was kind of a code name. They felt that they didn't want anybody that get this letter to know that I'm talking about the Romans or anybody opposed to Christianity where Paul was. And so they called it Babylon to kind of keep it secret. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, it's not his real son, it's the son in Christ. And if you remember, Mark also had a falling out with Paul, remember? So here is another individual that basically was not necessarily faithful, but has turned his life around. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That was kind of a traditional greeting. Man kissed men, women kissed women, not vice versa. Nothing except that, a greeting. Peace, isn't that what we all want? Peace to you all. And the peace only comes in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. By the way, thank you for your time and your comments today. Father, I pray that uh, we would be armed and equipped and be steadfast as we administer to your, your faithful, 
to administer to those that need help, and everybody needs help. We pray, Father, that uh, we would be able to understand why, all these tri- why these trials come to our life and that we would put our faith and trust in you that you have them. And they're only for a short period of time in light of eternity. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that uh, you would continue to bless us in Christ and through him we pray, amen. Next week, no class, so it'll be two weeks from now, starting Second Peter.